Welcome to Beyond, conversations with artists, makers, explorers who have gone outside of the norm to create their own true world, to sing their own precious song. Each of us is born with a song inside, but most will die having never sung it. Imagine if, as a little child, instead of being asked, what will you do when you grow up? What will you be? Or what kind of job will you get when you grow up? If instead you are told, now is the time to listen. As you grow, listen for the sounds of your song. The song that comes from your blood, your bones, your people. Listen for the melody, the verses, the tune. And when you hear your song, sing it. Imagine that kind of world. That's the kind of world I'm devoted to building. I am your host, Daphne Cohn, the creator of multiple online programs, courses, and within a community for artists, makers, and writers dedicated to the courage and practice of singing their own song. I ask you, are you ready to sing your own song? Are you ready to go beyond? Before we dive in, just a reminder about Illumin, which is the free sacred creativity hour that is every Monday through Friday on Zoom. It's a time to come together from wherever you are in the world to make one hour to do whatever is your creativity, painting, drawing, playing, movement, writing, whatever is your art, and to just come and be in community, but in silence. It's a quiet space where we collectively gather in honor of creativity. My guest today is Mandy Kahn. Now, in some way, I am changed by every interview, but then there are the ones that uproot my knowing and shift the soil below me. This is one of those interviews. Mandy is a poet, peace advocate, and public speaker Her list of accolades and accomplishments is long and brief, but hardly complete. Mandy is the author of two collections of poetry, Glenn Gould's Chair and Math Heaven Time. She's the writer in residence at the Philosophical Research Society, the subject of a feature length documentary, Peace, Peace, the immersive poems of Mandy Kahn and recipient of the 2018 Shakespeare Prize in Poetry. Other recipients include Tom Stoppard and Ray Bradbury. Mandy has given readings around the world, collaborates to make works that combine poetry and classical music, and offers a free weekly online class on the nature of peace. Mandy is a mystic and intuitive whose divine wisdom can truly change this world. Some of the things we talk about in this conversation are the world-altering power of peace, Mandy's health breakdown and how it led to surrender, God, and a life of miracles. Her earliest experiences as a mystic. What it looks like to live a life led by intuition. Hope as a holy elevator. Her exact process for writing poetry and how Mandy maintains her connection to creativity. You can learn more about Mandy and her work at mandycon.com and you can catch up on all past episodes at daphnecone.com. May this conversation inspire you to go within to the raw, wild expanse of mystery that is your beating heart, vibrating body, pulsing life, in order to go beyond, to utter the holy, your words, 
dance, painting, art. Hello, Mandy. Welcome to Beyond. It is a true, true joy to have you. It is such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. We're going to talk about peace and poetry and whatever else arises over the course of our time, but I want to begin with peace and then move into the poetry and they'll probably weave together over the course of, of the hour or so. I want to start with something that you said about peace. You said peace has arrived in such a profound way from a place of openness. I dream about it. I wake up with things to say about it, with things to think about it, with things to share with people about it. So peace is this theme in your life and theme feels like almost too small a word, but it really is what you're living your life from at this time. When did this exploration and embodiment of, well, first, when did the exploration for you begin with peace and then this embodiment? So when I was 10 years old and was at summer camp, I had this profound moment. My summer camp counselor was wearing a symbol around her neck. And I asked her what it was, and she told me it was the peace sign. And when she said the word, the peace sign, and um, started to talk about peace, I had this moment where I sort of stepped out of time. It was a, an early mystic experience. So I was still there. I was still in my body, but I kind of stepped into um, almost stepped into space time. So I was still aware of what was going on around me, but I was sort of, it's, it's sort of like the zone that you're in when you leave your body in dream. I entered that place and I could tell in this moment that what she was telling me was a profound touchstone of my life. It felt like being hit by lightning in, in kind of an a point of awareness. So it was a profound experience. I didn't tell anyone about it. But when school started in the fall, we had the opportunity to choose a subject matter for a big project we were going to work on for the whole year. And so I decided I wanted to work on the topic of peace. And my teacher brought me up to his desk to talk a little bit about the topic I had chosen. And I told him that I was going to do my year long project on peace. And he said, so you mean on, on war and, or on war and peace, or what exactly do you mean? And I said, well, not on war, but on peace. And he said, well, peace itself isn't a subject, but you could do a project on wars and the way that wars were ended and i was so i was so caught off guard by the fact that the thing that i had experienced as being peace was so different from the peace that he understood and he was the adult he was the teacher and i was the child and i was so shaken by this distance between what I knew about peace, but 
couldn't put into words. And the common definition of peace that was being taught, but also I think was commonly understood that that, that great distance was remarkable to me. And I, I was pretty dumbfounded and, and just sort of said, okay, I'll do a project on, on the end of war. So I ended up doing a year long project on armistices basically, but that experience stayed with me. I knew that there was something that I understood about the nature of peace that wasn't understood. And I knew that I would continue to live in that understanding of the spirit of peace, the heart of peace, what it is. And I just thought that it would be something that I would live with privately, my own private love of peace and the true nature of peace as I experienced it. And then fast forward to my adulthood, I, um, I'm a poet, it's 2018. <laughs> my second book of poetry has come out and I'm preparing for a year um, worth of events, readings and things. And peace arrives in my life in this very powerful way. I should back up and say yeah. that I'm, I'm an intuitive. And so I, I want to actually pause for one minute. Okay. Yeah. I realized because there's a lot, there's a lot of things already. And I want to just hold on to a few of the, of the threads before going into this. So I'm going to come back to 2018. First thing I just want to ask though, is um, we're, we're going to get into this understanding that you have about peace. One, you use this word that you had an early mystic experience and you've talked about you call yourself a mystic and intuitive. You just said, you know, said you're an intuitive. So can we explain those words as to lay the groundwork as we go into this conversation? Cause I feel like they're going to be a big part of this conversation. Absolutely. So when I say the word mystic, what I mean is that I live both in the seen and the unseen concurrently. So I live by way of my five senses and also by way of my sixth sense concurrently. So I'm getting information from both places at the same time. Okay. Well, definitely coming back to that. <laughs> uh, and then to touch on before we go into 2018, this idea of how peace peace was not a subject that you could take for a year, but war was, and you could study war through this lens of how does it lead, you know, the times that it has led to peace or these different, the armistice, armistice I can't say that word. How do you say it? Armistice? It's hard to say armistice. I know. Armistice. <laughs> I try never to say it because it's hard to say. Um, but that in and of itself is really fascinating that we have this, this understanding what feels like a concrete understanding of war and then peace is so vague and nebulous that it feels like something you can't even undertake to study so can you talk a little bit about what is it where is that concreteness for you around peace so peace is a place where war does not begin 
where belligerence does not begin. So when we enter the peace state, one of the first things that we notice is, oh, belligerence isn't here. Fighting isn't here. Cruelty isn't here. But the absence of those things is just what we tend to notice first about the peace state. But the more time we spend in the peace state, the more we become aware of what is there. We're less shocked by what isn't there. And we are more amazed by what is there. So when, when there are people in the peace state who are together, it is a place of harmony. It is the place of a gorgeous coordination of all beings that acknowledges what is lovable about each person. It's the place of flowing creativity. It is the place in which we see each other from love, through the eyes of love. So there is no belligerence there because there's so much honoring of each other that belligerence simply doesn't begin. There's also in the place of peace, the absolute love of reverence for the earth and the earth's waters and the animals of the earth. It is simply a way of, so I, I should say, when I say the place of pieces, it's a thing, it's a real thing. What we often use the word peace to mean is a ceasefire. So what I was understanding with my fifth grade teacher was that when I said the word peace, I was referring to this place in which belligerence does not begin, this state in which belligerence does not begin. And he was using the other definition of peace, really the more common one in our time, which is a ceasefire. And it was that distance that was, that was very jarring for me. So to use one word to mean both ceasefire, which is the ending of belligerence that has, that has broken out, and the peace state in which belligerence does not begin, it's a problem of language. It is a combining of two things that do not exist together because in the peace state, belligerence does not begin. So one of the first things that came to me to do was really get clear on these differences so that I could teach them. Okay. So does that bring us back to 2018 then? So back to 2018. So into this life where I'm sort of planning this year of events as a poet and peace begins to arrive, definitions of peace, ways to explain some of the things that I've started talking about today and to really see them clearly begins to arrive. And because I'm an intuitive and because I'm a mystic, I am able to tell that it's part of my part of my reason for being here to begin to talk about these things. So the first thing that I did was that I started to talk a little bit about the nature of peace in the events that I was already scheduled to give as a poet. So I started showing up to poetry readings and between poems, I would talk a little bit about the nature of peace to audiences that had not arrived to hear about peace, audiences that weren't expecting it. 
And I did that for a little while, sort of wondering if that would fulfill my requirement because I could, I could feel that it was um, an important part of what I'm here to do. Then all of my work suddenly started to become about peace. So I, I make immersive poems or interactive poems, poems that are performance-based in which a group of actors will be sharing different lines of the poem and, and a visitor can walk in between those performers and experience the poem as an immersive thing. And I started making these immersive poems that were about the nature of peace. And that, that turned into a, a series of live concerts about the nature of peace, where I would both premiere these immersive poems about peace, talk a little bit about the nature of peace, and then there would be um, a musical guest, either a composer, there would be fine artists. We did a series of these concerts beginning in 2019 um, every month until uh, quarantine started. And then when, when quarantine started and I was no longer able to do the peace concerts and when like everyone else, I had my days absolutely open because we were in lockdown, that's when the peace information moved from being more creatively based. So expressing in lines of, of, of poetry and instead became very informational. And I started to essentially receive very straightforward information that started to become a book about the nature of peace. And that's how I spent lockdown was writing this book about the nature of peace. And, and in the beginning of writing that material, it was coming out almost as, as verse, really as, as these long lines of verse. And then it sort of transitioned to being paragraph form. And it took me some time to really understand the relationship between the more creative forms of talking about peace and the more informational and instructive ways of just talking about the nature of peace that I was being sort of called to step into. Okay, a couple questions here. One, we have this, this big word, peace, and then there's the understanding from how you just explained it. And the first thing I want to touch on just to kind of get it out of the way actually is when you speak about peace, one, does it feel given the world that we live in to be a particularly naive topic to be talking about? Like, do you, are you met with that from others? And do you ever question this, the commitment that you have to it? Or is that part of the mystic and the intuitive of I'm, the, I'm, the certainty? I'm very comfortable with being odd. <laughs> so that is something that I had to learn to get comfortable with early on in my life. It's interesting because I don't look odd at all, but I've always carried ways of seeing that are different from what is commonly practiced around me. So I'm grateful to have had a lifetime of training in that. Mm -hmm. um, also in my family, just feeling very different from everyone else. But one thing that I have learned 
with the peace material is that peace is an incredibly efficient tool. It's an incredibly effective tool. So we think of it as this ephemeral, flowy state that it's nice to experience, but it doesn't really change things when the opposite is true. It is a powerful force for change. In fact, when we start to learn how to use these peace techniques, we can change the world very quickly with no money and no resources. When one realizes the inherent world altering, and by that I mean society altering power of peace, we realize why it has been uh, why we have been taught something different about it, because it's so powerful that just a few people who really understand what peace is, how to engage it, how to experience it and to flow their own peace into the collective consciousness, how powerful that peace that we choose to both in experience personally and then gift by way of our consciousness to the collective consciousness, how powerfully it changes. And by that, I mean, heals that which is there and begins to change the possibilities for all of humanity so quickly. It's such a powerful tool that it makes sense that we have been taught, don't bother with that. It's not powerful. It has been a project of marketing. We have, it has been marketed as weak because it is so powerful. Yeah. It's interesting when you say it's a, a product of marketing, much like I think love and other words that we yes. do the same thing with, but you say to arrive at peace, begin at peace. What do you mean by that? So to experience peace around us. So peace, world peace, general harmony among people to arrive at that kind of peace, begin with peace in the body, peace in the experience. The peace that we choose to build for ourselves in the body, in, in the experience, we gift to all by way of the collective consciousness. And when it enters the collective consciousness, it begins to heal what is there. So peace is a is a very, very powerful healing agent. It heals by witnessing, by acknowledging, and by loving without end, loving without condition. So to imagine how this, the healing aspect of peace works, imagine two people in conflict and imagine one of those people saying to the other person, you have not been honored here. You have not been loved and you deserve to be honored without condition. You deserve to be loved without condition. And I have arrived to do that now. You deserve to be loved without condition. And I am here to do that now. So that action is how peace heals. It is the loving without end that all deserve and all resentment is essentially a, a, a person or a fragment of a person saying, I have not been honored. I have not been loved. And peace always agrees and says, you're right. You have not been honored and you have not been loved. 
and you are deserving of absolute honoring and you are deserving of absolute love. And I am here to do that now. And here is my love without end. And here is my compassion without end. And in that interaction, there is true healing. First, I think about if I'm standing in front of somebody wanting to be this person who extends peace to honor, to love in the moment, I have this image come up of like being a glass that I want to offer somebody water, but the glass is empty. So it's like where one, where that piece, like having to start with oneself in terms of even being able to offer that piece to another, is that something that we need to do? And then the other thing is we have these conversations and they're very much in the rational mind and even rational heart in the moment of, oh yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to do that in in a conflict. I want to say, you have not been honored. You've not been loved. I'm here for that. And then in the moment of the conflict, I'm not in that rational place. I'm, I'm in the conflict. (laughs) I'm not in the place of peace without conflict. I'm in the conflict. And the the non-rational, the irrational part of me is saying, no, 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 you're wrong. No, 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 this and getting caught up in it. So where is that pause and where does that begin in order to start to, to really embody and live that? So the first part of your question, you said, is that what we need to do? So I love that you use that phrase. So the beauty of working with peace is that there are so many ways to work with peace and peace arrives the easy way. So <laughs> there are, there are I, I teach maybe 50 different um, peace building techniques. And I always say to people, choose the one that feels easiest to you. And then we choose a, a, a technique. I'll give you an example of one that feels easy. And we engage with it whenever we feel called and we allow peace to arrive the easy way. And when, when we feel drawn to one peace building technique and it feels easy, then often a little time will pass and we'll feel called to another technique and another technique. And this way, the path into our own peacefulness arrives stone by stone by stone and by way of ease. There's never a need to do. And then the second part of your question um, about when you're in conflict. So when we are not in the peace mind already, when we're not in experienced peace, what is being called for is self-kindness, self-gentleness. So those are the moments in which we can find new ways to practice self-kindness, self-softness. And then when we come back to an experience of balance, that's when we will feel called to step forward with a a peace building interaction. That makes sense. So what, yeah, did you want to share one easy one as as an example? Yeah. So uh, one that I really love for when we are in the kind of situation you talked about. So let's say there's some conflict or we feel triggered or we feel far from the peace mind. I love to use hope statements. 
So hope is a holy elevator. Hope is unique because it can get us from the furthest experience um, that we can have from peace. So a feeling of great disconnection and great frustration and anger, we can use hope literally as an elevator into an experience of peace. Nothing else can do it in quite the same way. So here's how I use the holy elevator of hope. Um, Hope statements. So I'll give you some examples. Let's say if I were in an experience far from peace, I might say, I hope that I wake up tomorrow and I feel a lot better. I hope that I get out of bed and I look out the window and I see something really nice, like maybe a bird or maybe I see the sunshine and and it looks really appealing to me. I hope that tomorrow I go for a walk in the sunshine and the sunshine feels really good on my skin. And I hope that that makes me feel a lot better. And I hope that on that walk, I see something funny, like maybe a dog is doing something funny, or maybe a baby in a stroller does something funny. And that funny thing just brings me some joy and it brings me some lightness. So as one continues with these hope statements, it's also an opportunity to engage one's creative faculty, one's imagination. One can can use this technique and as it is being used, feel the the elevator of hope lifting one from a lower experience into a higher experience of self until they realize, wow, I made it all the way to peace just using the elevator of hope. That's a beautiful and very simple way to begin to to step into it. And then if somebody's sharing, I'll just, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I'm going through something that's really hard and I come to you and I'm just like, and this is hard and this is hard. And this is why I'm suffering because this happened to me and this is what's wrong. And you are there with this peace mind holding embodying peace. Where do we meet? And is your intention to, to just hold the peace or is your intention to in holding peace that somehow you then imbue some peace in me? Is there a desire to shift the state or to just, or to be with whatever, what, what is and be peace with what is. So the first thing I want to say is I am a person who loves peace but I am also a person who makes this transit every day or every couple of days, meaning I experience time in the peace mind. I experience time out of the peace mind. And I practice these techniques to get into the peace mind whenever I feel called to be in peace. And sometimes I, like everyone else, have an experience of being out of the peace mind. And sometimes I even have the experience of being far out of the peace mind, not very often anymore, but it does still come up sometimes. So I have the opportunity to really practice these things. So I am, I, I'm a person who loves peace (laughs) and I walk with a peace intention. I walk with an intention to step further and further into an experience of peace but that is a lifelong project. So 
I, like everyone else, move in and out of the peace mind. Um, so that's the, the first thing I wanted to say. And then I also wanted to say that our own peace is our own project and peace is the place of unconditional love and unconditional honoring and unconditional gentleness for us. So when we are in experience of feeling like things are really hard, peace is always there to comfort us without condition. So we are always right in our feelings. So when we feel that it is hard, it is really hard. A really good peace building technique to use at that time is something like a nap or rest. <laughs> Often in those really challenging states, that's what is being called for. And so if I ever find myself in that sort of situation, I will tend to give myself incredible softness in my self-care. So I'll do something like take a nap, take a bath, listen to some music and not try to engage any of these techniques. Cause it's just, it's not, it's not the time for that. It's the time for self kindness. And then when I am in a, a more open state, the, the state of neutrality, that's when I will feel suddenly I'll be interested in something that will lift me into the higher aspects of my perspective and towards the peace mind when that neutrality has arrived. Okay. This brings up an, another aspect of something that I'd noticed, Mandy, in listening to interviews with you and just seeing you teach and, and listening to your words. And I hear it again just now in that answer, which is a level of permission, right? So if you're feeling, for example, if you're feeling like I'm not in the peace mind and it's not time yet, I, I'm listening and noticing it is not time yet to put these practices into place. Instead, I am going to take a nap or I'm going to take a bath. And there's so much permission in that. It seems small. Oh yeah, I'm going to go take a bath. But, and this is a perfect example of peace and, and then the conflict that can arise is in those moments, there can be a conflict that arises of, I don't have time for a nap I, I, or who I can't take a bath right now. I have, I have this, and then I have to go do this. And there, there's just too much going on or whatever that is, but the conflict that arises in the face of moving into peace. So, so what that sounds like to me is actually um, you're being shown a tension between two paradigms of how to live. Mm. One paradigm is that you just, you push through whatever your emotion is to get things done over the course of a day. It's the sort of, it's the world that I was raised in. It's sort of like a high school gym teacher saying, just push a little harder, just push a little harder, just push a little harder. And that is a perfectly reasonable way to live. And, and again, that's the world that I started in and, um, and that most or, or many people will continue to, to live in that paradigm. 
there is another paradigm. That other paradigm is a more, it's a softer way of living. It's an intuitive based way of living where we realize that we can accomplish more when we are listening to what we need in the moment. And that from that place of intuitive listening, we can align with that which is potentially most fruitful in terms of what we can accomplish in a day and what we can contribute to the world. It's a very different way of doing things because it aligns you in the moment with uh, with your highest expression at all, all times. And sometimes for me to experience my higher expression in the afternoon, what's required in the morning is a salt bath or a walk in the sunshine or reading on the couch in a way that looks like I'm accomplishing nothing because sometimes, because I live the second way. So I live in this intuitive paradigm and I have found for me that it has led me to my highest productivity, but you're right. The paradigms are different. And as we gaze from one paradigm to the other, it, we could experience that sort of friction or tension because they are such different ways of doing things. Mm, I love that. That brings me actually to something else that I, I really want to dive into and then to get into your poetry for sure, because I very much want to talk about your poetry. But what you were talking about right now, living in this different paradigm. And so that brings us back to this idea, this being a mystic. And one thing I wanted to bring into the conversation is something that you said around and, and you had when you were speaking about this you had talked earlier in the interview about creativity and then compared spirituality to creativity in, in the way that what it means to, to have a spiritual connection. And you said this, my spiritual connection is an openness. It is my job to maintain this body, this etheric body as open as possible and to put out my net and let what is my higher knowing come into it. What are you doing to keep your body as open as possible? And how does that tie into being a mystic? I love emptiness meditation, which is simply being empty of thoughts or observing the peace that is observing that, which is so that is it is a communing with openness. It is a becoming open. So that openness that I practice in the morning, creating in myself, it creates, so, um, so that which is open fills. So when we create space within ourselves, things can be born in us. Things can be born through us. I've actually done the same thing with my external space, my home. I went from living with a lot of things in the space, having more possessions to um, reducing my possessions and living. People walk into my living room. They're like, where is everything? <laughs> Does anybody live here? Because I, I, 
I'm a minimalist now. I've created external space at the same time that I have created internal space. And I find that that space, that openness brings more into my life because I have room for it. So more creativity seems to flow in more ideas, more projects, things can flow right into me and right through me from this state of openness. Also, it means that I am very flexible when my life changes and when my life, when I receive more information about what my life purpose is or why I'm here. So that point of junction at the end of 2018, when peace started to arrive, also involved a a kind of shift of what the focus of my life is, because I, I already had the job that I love, which is being a poet. And it became clear that moving ahead, my life, my work would have two halves a peace side and a poetry side. And because I am open to learning more about myself, learning more about why I'm here, I was open to that and said, okay, I will have these two halves of what I do at once. You just said, you know, learning, you're open to learning why you're here. Do you think that there is a a why that you're here? It seems, I mean, it does seem pretty clear since you had this moment. (laughs) There definitely, there is for everyone. There is for everyone. Everyone is here for a reason. And everyone is here for a reason of equal magnitude, of equal importance. Everyone who incarnated in these times came to bring a gift, the gift of themselves. And there are many dimensions to that gift. And the process of living is the process to some degree of unwrapping the gift of ourselves, learning more and more about why we're here, becoming more and more familiar with what comes easily to us, which is often an indicator of Um, what we're here to share, and how to be the gift of ourselves um, most fully in, in the world. So for me, it's always a process of discovery. And whenever I get to the place where I think, okay, well, I've discovered a lot. I'm, I feel like I really know why I'm here. Then something new will pop up and I'll realize, oh, there's, oh, I hadn't realized that about myself. You know, I'm, as a mystic, something that I really love to do is past life regressions. I I can sort of do my own past life regression. So I'll have an experience where I'll go back and see myself in another life and another body. And it will give me another way of understanding why I am here and how something that I've experienced in another body, in another place, how this can be a culmination of something that I was practicing then. 
Say a little more about this idea of being a mystic, of living in both the seen and the unseen. And if this is something that has just always been with you or something that you actively cultivate. So, so when I was a child, I had my intuitive gifts more turned on. So I had some clear audience, clear hearing meaning that I could hear um, angels and guides. And when I was about seven years old or eight, I think I was seven years old. I had this moment where I sort of said, okay, I'm going to tell my parents. So I walked into the room and basically said to my mom, you know, you should know that I can, I can hear voices that are you know, there's no body, but I can hear a voice. And my mom said, thank you very much for telling me that. I'm so glad you told me that. And then two days later said, we have an appointment for you with an excellent psychiatrist. She, you know, she's wonderful and she specializes in children. So I went in to see this wonderful woman, this psychiatrist, and I, <laughs> I could read her energy and I realized, first of all, she was a, such a beautiful woman and such a loving woman. And I could tell that what she wanted me to say was, I don't hear those voices anymore. And I realized that, you know, our intuitive abilities are, you know, we have different, we can be clear voyant, we can see things, we can be clear audience, we can hear things, we can have clear knowing. Um, I realized that I could simply turn off this ability and these abilities, and I could tell her what she wanted to hear. And I could tell my parents what they wanted to hear. And I knew that I was making a conscious choice to do that. And I did that. And I had a beautiful, you know, few months of sessions with this very wonderful psychiatrist. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and I turned off those abilities and then I could say, you know, no, I don't, I don't hear that anymore. And she was thrilled. And, you know, anyway, I, I sort of made a conscious decision. Well, this is how things run here. Um, this is a meritocracy and it values the mind and it values intelligence and it values, you know, uh, doing well in school and going to a good college. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to try it that way. And I'm going to keep my intuitive abilities turned off and I'm going to explore things that way. And so I lived that way through, through college, very much leaning on um, the things that are valued in this society, like, you know, research and book learning and the mind. And I, I still love research and love libraries anyway. And then in my early twenties, I started having mystic experiences again and opened that door up again to begin to bring those intuitive abilities back in. Wow. It's amazing to hear the knowing as a child and the ability to turn it off. And then when it's the time to turn back on, it comes back into your life. It's like now, now it's time. I want to use this though to transition into, because you just mentioned going to college and, and 
doing that whole path. So to transition into poetry, because you studied poetry, that was your plan in college was to become a poet. Well, that was always my dream beyond all other dreams. I also took to heart what we were taught a lot, which is poetry is great, but you can't you know, make a living doing it and almost nobody can have a career doing it. So, you know, it's wonderful to study, but you know, you should have a backup plan. But it was always my dream beyond all dreams to, to be a poet. For me, poetry is as natural as breathing. So I started writing in verse, really speaking in verse as a small child. My grandmother used to read to me every day from Um, a collection of verses that were in traditional meter and that had rhyme as well. And almost as soon as I was, I could speak, I could speak in, in verse in that way. It's just an incredibly natural form of expression for me. So I was always doing it. I was so grateful to be in college where I could study it so deeply. It was my fullest love. It was my truest love. And then after school, I had to try out different modes of organizing a life before I came around to poetry as being the center of my life. Fast forward, I had been out of school a few years. I had a essentially a health breakdown where my body stopped working mainstream medicine didn't know what was happening with me. Ultimately, I found my way into the office of an alternative healer, and I was able to start getting better. But it was about a year of being in a a, a body that couldn't do most things um, before I was able to sort of come back. And during that health crisis, I gave my life to to God. I basically said, I can't do this on my own. Basically, when I was really sick, I had lots of symptoms, but one of the hardest symptoms for me to endure was a very, very intense brain fog. I couldn't think clearly and I couldn't read more than one sentence without my mind wandering. And that had always been my way of solving problems. Well, I'll just research it. I'll just find, you know, the best expert and read everything that's out there on that thing. And I will self-solve this problem. Well, the brain fog made that impossible. So finally, I, I simply said, God, I'm giving you this life and show me what to do. Show me what to do because I can't get out of this on my own. And so open the doors that are right for me to walk through. And I will walk through any door that you open and close the rest of the doors And I'll just walk whatever path you send me because I can't do this on my own. So what happened was I landed very, very quickly in the office of the alternative doctor that was able to diagnose me and get me better. What also happened was I got an email out of the blue. So a couple of years before, in the middle of the night, I had had this impulse to email my poems to a reading series in Los Angeles that I had read about in the newspaper. I didn't know anything about this reading series. 
except that I, I saw it in the newspaper and then I had this very strong intuitive nudge to, you know, email them my poems. So I got an email back right after I had sort of given my, my life to, to God from the woman who runs this reading series. And she said, when you sent your poems in, I printed them out and I've had them on my desk waiting to have an opportunity to invite you to come read in this series. And, and I have one now. And so would you like to read in this series? And so I went to that event to read. And had I known more about this reading series, I would not have had the confidence to send my work in because all the other readers were um, published authors with several books on the shelves. And I, you know, at the time had, hadn't um, published anything. Um, but that email was a miracle because that reading series, there were four other readers on the bill, all who were quite admired. And so everyone was in the audience that day to see the people that they admired, that they knew. And I was the opening act <laughs> for them. And by the end of the night, it became clear that all the people who ran all the other reading series in town were in the audience. And by having been there that night, I was on the bill to read in all the other reading series and really in Southern California, because everyone had come to this thing to see these other readers. And so suddenly I've, I'm giving a reading in Orange County and I'm giving a reading in San Diego. And I'm so basically overnight, I went from a person who wow. wrote poetry privately always to a person who had a full schedule of public readings to a person who had a, a first collection to a person who had a second collection. It all happened very quickly when I gave my life to God. Two questions to that. One is, were there doors that you had to close? I, I, I none come to mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you gave your life to God was, well, actually I don't have that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask that. Instead what I want to ask is how, because you often compared your creativity, your creative practice to your spiritual practice. They sound like they're one and the same. And so what does this look like, this practice for you of engaging with writing poetry, just, just being with the poetry, however it shows up in your life? So writing a poem for me is a practice of openness. So the practice begins with, um, well, actually you've seen it because I come to your Lumen Hour where we're all in a Zoom room together and we're all um, under, we're, we're all in our creative practice together. So you have seen this, but essentially I'll begin with the state of openness. I'll have a stack of books um, by other poets and I'll start flipping through and reading some poems in this state of openness. And within five minutes or 15 minutes of reading poems 
by other poets. Essentially, in this in this reading, what I'm doing is I'm getting used to this the sound and the rhythm of verse in my mind. So as soon as I read any poems, um, I sort of switch over to a, a versified way of thinking and being. And then in this openness, I'm sort of flipping through different books and I'm reading things and I'm interested and I'm engaged. A poem will start to arrive, an idea, you know, when a poem arrives for me, it feels a little bit like if I were fishing and I were out on a fishing boat and I put a line into the water, I can feel a fish pull on the end of a line. And sometimes I can feel a little something about the fish, like how big it is or how insistent it is, but it isn't until I reel it in, which is starting to write the poem, that I really know what's on the end of the line. And it's the process of writing the poem is the, is the process of discovering what has, has attached itself to my line. So it's a process of, um, yeah, kind of uh, unfolding, seeing, seeing what that fish is, getting closer and closer into it. And any kind of editing would not happen, I'm assuming, in this phase that it's really opening, letting whatever is coming onto the paper to come onto the paper? I actually love for the editing to happen in the same session. So essentially I'll write a first draft, which is the the draft of pure discovery. So that's just pure flow. What is this fish? What is this story? So I'll start from the first line and I'll get to the last line. And often I'm handwriting that first draft. Then I go right to my computer, type it out. And in that process of typing, I'm already making changes. And then I'll print it out, retype it, make more changes, print it out, retype it, make more changes. And ideally, I'm still in the feeling of encountering the fish and pulling the fish up. And I'm still in the feeling experience of the first draft. But as I'm doing this process, next thing you know, I'm seven drafts in. And that's when things feel most organic to me. When the same impulse that wrote the first draft is the impulse that made the edit that turned it from sixth draft to seventh draft. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're, you're still in that energy. It sounds like of the poem of the experience. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's, that's the ideal. And then sometimes I'll get to a place where I say, okay, this is as far as the editing process can go this day, because I feel like I've done all that I can do here. And then sometimes the next morning I'll wake up and I'll feel really drawn to go pull that poem up that I wrote yesterday. And then sometimes I'll start that editing process again. Sometimes, you know, if, if I write a poem and I make it all the way through to like the seventh draft or something, sometimes it's done or almost done that first day. And maybe there are, you know, a few tweaks like line breaks or enjambments that will happen later, but sometimes it's, it's almost completely done um, in that first session. And this seems like a really good moment to hear a poem. Would you like to share one of your poems? Yeah, this one I pulled because I wrote this in your 
Illumin group. So um, Daphne has a wonderful creativity group that happens Monday through Friday where we meet up in a Zoom room. It's open to anyone if anybody feels called to join. And the first time I ever came to your Illumin Creativity Hour, I did the process I just described, and this is the poem that came forward. Poem about the moment of death. I won't pretend I do not know what happens the moment we die. We're flung out of all worry the way poppy seeds are launched from their pods. We'd watch them swell those pods each spring in common grass when we were young, trying to implore them to fling while we looked. A flurry of colorless worlds would burst from our small one and make their huge arcs, not while we were waiting, but after when we were deep in acting out how we might spend this life. Then we'd hear the softest sound and a hundred shell white earths would launch from our earth past where we could see. How those uncolored, rough and small made poppies or how they knew to wait till we had turned away we did not understand it. We knew it as enchantment. I won't pretend that I don't know how death arrives seeming to be colorless or how it waits for us to leave the bedside after days to stretch our legs at last or to make tea. I won't pretend I do not know the poppy fields, its clear arc builds. A flash when someone's back is turned, then lightness, lying worlds. <laughs> so, okay. Um, <laughs> that's, it's, poetry is, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing form of communication. And one of the things, so you have, I won't pretend that I don't know. And I wonder about that. So with this back and forth between the seen and the unseen, being a mystic, keeping yourself creatively open, keeping yourself spiritually open, and the things that arrive, is there ever a part of you that says, I don't know if I should share this or is it just, it comes through most of the time, most of the time, okay. <laughs> most, of the time. <laughs> most of the time. So when, when I'm asked a direct question about something from a place of genu genuine curiosity, I am always happy to share. But most of the time, I'm not necessarily engaging with people about my wider perspective unless there is, is an interest. Okay. So again, there's that listening and the discernment. And I can see too how that contributes to peace 
because it's holding that space for what wants to be in the in this space as opposed to what you think you should turn it into or what you think this person should know or believe or hear from you so that very flexible open hand holding so it sounds like peace is the place of no preference and it's also the place of the honoring of all beings. And it's also the place of honoring everyone exactly where they are. And that's because from peace's perspective, from the higher perspective, everything is seen at once. So our purpose is seen where we began, everything we've experienced up to this point, it's all seen at once and, and we are seen through the eyes of absolute love. So we are loved completely in every moment of our own evolution because we, it is understood that we are here to evolve and that we are engaged in that, in that evolving whether or not we realize that consciously. So all human evolution is towards the choosing of peace. It's towards peace by choice. So eventually every being will, you know, try whatever they feel called to try and have different experiences and learn from those experiences. And ultimately everyone will choose peace from a place of free will, from a place of being able to choose any way of, of being in the world, they will choose peacefulness. Every human incarnational cycle is heading towards that place. And so anything that a person is experiencing is either what they need to learn so that they will eventually choose peace or they're choosing peace. Now mm -hmm. there are only two experiences learning towards peace and a choosing of peace now. So peace understands that and honors both of those states equally. And so the learning towards peace is equally honored. So everyone is honored exactly as they are and exactly where they are. There is no should in peace because we are too loved. We are loved too completely exactly where we are and exactly as we are. But also because peace understands the ultimate purpose of our learning there is never a moment of doubt. It knows because this has been the path of every sentient being always of all time, all paths are heading towards the choosing of peace. And so it is with total confidence that we are gazed at from the place of peace, knowing that we are learning perfectly. I am so struck by the confidence and directness with which you speak, you talk about this and it just is right. It's like, this is how it is. And <laughs> I think, wow, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by that confidence, by that sureness. Well, we are all here to be ourselves and we will have invitations to be ourselves more fully and more fully and more fully as we move forward. And then everybody else has free will to either resonate with us, to lean into us, to 
feel called to us, or maybe to feel the other way, which is they don't have resonance with us. Um, and they will resonate with something else and be drawn in a different direction. So when we can arrive as we are, honestly, as we are, it gives other people the opportunity to either resonate with what we are or not resonate with what we are. And the clearer we are with what we are, the more efficiently that process can happen. So I, I am aware that I am engaged in that process just as everyone is. And I'm not afraid to be a sound that some, that many, that most don't resonate with because we are all engaged in that process all the time. Mm, love that. Okay. I'm, we'll come to the, the closing part of this interview. I feel inside of me like a fountain of questions. Like there's so much more <laughs> that I want to ask you, but I'm looking at the time. And so I'm going to bring this to a close and then we'll see, maybe there'll be another conversation. Okay. So first I'll share, we'll go, we'll have a, a question at the end, but, um, and actually before I even go into this, is there anything that I haven't asked that you want to speak to? Well, one thing I'd love to just explain for people what the peace mind is Uh, because the peace mind is a free resource that everyone is born with and that everyone has. So I love to explain what it is so that people can um, engage this free resource that is theirs if they choose. So imagine that your consciousness is a 20 story building. And imagine that there is a spiral staircase that extends from the first floor of that building up to the 20th floor of that building. Your peace mind is the top floor of that building. It's the most elevated portion of your consciousness. So you, your perspective, you might imagine as a figure, a body, a person moving up and down that spiral staircase, essentially moving up and down your own consciousness. People tend to have places within their consciousness, floors in their consciousness where they tend to hang out or they tend to feel most comfortable. So some people tend to hang out on the first few floors of their consciousness. Some people tend to hang out towards the middle and some people really love that highest perspective, that peace mind. And once we realize that the peace mind is there, that whether or not we go there frequently, some people go there every day. Some people might say, I don't know that I've been there this year but it is always there. Whether we spend much time there, it is in us. It is an inherent part of our physiology. It is our birthright and it can't be taken from us. So what's so great about the resource of the peace mind is that when we are in the peace mind and when we are gazing at the world through the perspective of our peace mind, There is no need to labor to love others. We love others inherently. 
There is no need to labor to honor others. There is no need to labor to act in kindness or to act in peace. There is no need to labor to feel our own peaceful nature or our own loving nature because we have that experience inherently when we are gazing at the world through the perspective of our peace mind. Now, there are some other very practical advantages to the peace mind. For example, peace mind is from what your lower mind, from your lower mind's perspective, you would describe the peace mind as the place of solutions. That's because from the lower mind, you see problems um, around you and you are laboring to try to fix these problems. When you are in the peace mind, you can gaze back at the same situation and you are simply able to see the actions to take to resolve that situation. From the peace mind, it will look more like evolving the situation towards its harmonic end because you don't see things as problems, you see things as situations. But that is where what your lower mind would call solutions, that's where they effortlessly live. That's where they are accessed. The peace mind is the place of intelligence in concert with intuition. Therefore, it is the place of genius. That is what genius is. Genius is intelligence in concert with intuition or all-knowing. So it's a pretty incredible free resource that is available to us. And then the other thing about the peace mind is there's always a path to peace from where you are. And when you are in the peace mind, you see that path easily. And sometimes when you are far from the peace mind, when you're on floors one, two, three, four of your own consciousness, it can feel like, for example, something like world peace or that could seem impossible. And that's because to the lower mind, it is impossible. But the moment you gaze at that same situation from the peace mind, it's not only possible, but you can see the steps. So that which is impossible to your lower mind doesn't mean that it's impossible. It, it's basically your lower mind saying, I can't get there. I, it's too many steps to get there from where I am. And I can't figure out the way they're using my tools. The lower mind uses totally different tools. It uses logic and deduction. And um, there are some processes that require more vision, more than, than the lower mind can muster. So the lower mind will look at that situation and say, impossible, can't be done. But when we remember that there is a resource within us that will show us that there is always a path to peace, whether that is peace in your own experience, peace in your family, peace in your neighborhood, world peace, harmony between nations, that pathway is always there. And when we individually choose to use the resource of the peace mind, we will be shown our steps so that we can contribute to general harmony, peace on earth. Uh, it is not required to control what others do. 
Instead, we have the opportunity to choose what we do. And when we choose to engage with the part of us that not just loves peace, but is peace, not just labors for peace, but walks in peace. When we choose that part of ourselves, we are always walking towards peace and in peace and with peace all at once. And that is an invitation to others. When we choose to walk in peace, there is a natural energy about us that is an invitation to others that will sometimes incite another to make a similar choice. So the peace mind is a pretty incredible resource. It's, it's a place that sometimes, you know, many creative people have engaged this resource. Many inventors engage this resource. Um, it's the place of, of true innovation. The lower mind can innovate at the level of a step or two or three steps ahead of, of, of what is known. But the peace mind is the place of true innovation. That's where you can get an idea that is as far ahead, as forward thinking as is possible within the collective consciousness at this moment. So true innovation can only come from the place of the higher mind. So it's a pretty incredible free resource. That's beautiful. Thank you, Mandy. And I'm going to move right into where people can find you because when after listening to something like that, this description of the peace mind, the first response is like, okay, okay, that I want that. I want to be in my peace mind. And, and I will say that every Wednesday at 6 PM Pacific, 9 PM Eastern, although people come from all over the world, Mandy holds a peace talk and it's part of the philosophical research society. Is that right? Exactly. The, the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles presents the class. And so that's every Wednesday and it's free. It's an hour long. And every class, Mandy shares, there's a meditation, there's an active writing piece, uh, an exploration, an exploratory writing piece. And Mandy gives a talk. A sh- not a long talk, but a talk on some aspect of peace. So it's a beautiful way to deepen this understanding of peace mind and, and deepen not just the understanding, but a way of actually beginning to embody it in this world. And if you can't make it to the talk, it's great to sign up anyway to go because the day of the class, Mandy sends out an email with the talk from the previous class in the body of the email. So you can always read the talk if you weren't able to come to the class. Highly recommend that. And for anything that you wanna know about Mandy, you can go to Mandy Khan and that's K-A-H-N, mandycon.com. This, it's a new site, so it's it's evolving, but you'll go visit it and, and continue to visit it since it will be changing and you can see how it changes. The other thing I wanna say actually about the peace class is it's also another opportunity to just be in this energy of peace one hour a week, to be in the energy of the peace that Mandy is constantly cultivating 
and what happens when we come together with that intention and that shared energy. So highly recommend the peace class and going and checking out mandycon.com. And that will bring me to my gratitude. Sometimes when I do interviews, there is a feeling that this conversation, if I let it, will fundamentally change me. And this is one of those conversations. I feel like what you have talked about is so powerful. To try to put words on it is also really difficult because I can feel in my body the impact of it and I can feel as well the potential impact of it. And it's, I just feel extreme, like so much gratitude, so much gratitude for you, for your, your commitment to something that most of us, honestly, I think are afraid to commit to. And your choosing peace and expressing it in the way that you do and expressing it through your poetry and through your words and through the way that you live, how you embody it is an incredible, not just inspiration, but um, model for me. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you so much. Those words really touched my heart. Um, I'm so honored to be here. This was such an incredible, incredible joy for me to share this space with you. Yeah, thank you. And I was thinking that instead of having a closing question, if we could have a closing poem. Absolutely. It will take me one second to pull one. I have one right here. So a closing poem, something that I have been called to talk about for the last five or six weeks in peace class is one particular aspect of peace. And that aspect is compassion without end. And what I have been shown is that when we choose to expand our compassion so that our compassion eventually includes a few more and then a few more and then a few more people until our compassion can include everyone. What I have been shown is that when we expand our compassion, we will change what is possible on this planet. When our compassion ends nowhere, there will be peace on earth. So this is something that I have been teaching um, now in 2022. So I felt called to share this poem that I wrote um, maybe maybe in 2019. So maybe three years before I was shown the connection between compassion and peace, I wrote this poem. So when I look back at this poem, I can see that I was engaging with some, something as a poet that I wouldn't fully understand. 
in regards to its connection to peace for a few years. This poem is called, My Heart Has Rooms. Unlovable, unloving, bring them here. I will love them first. My heart has rooms. Years ago, its chambers had to spread. Soon they'd fit an apple, a notebook, a phone book, a chair. Soon each was a sitting room, a chapel, then a synagogue, then a hall of state. Soon there was the space for all constituents. Soon long benches spread. Soon high doors were spread. Anyone can love the young, the old. Send the hard, the strong. Those whose chambers seem to house just blood. Those who were not loved and do not love. I've built benches where we'll sit till heaven fuses us forever with plain light each other. The hurtful, the brutal, the cursing, the cold. By a window under cloud, I'll sit with them, gingerly, unspeaking, until the morning I learn why. Thank you so much, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so, so grateful to have spent this time with you. If this conversation has moved you or inspired you in some way, then give yourself time to be with it. Let the words and the wisdom settle in. And if you'd like to share this episode with someone else, please do. For all show notes and past episodes and to learn about all offerings, go to DaphneCone.com. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that over on iTunes or Spotify, and you can review it over at iTunes. And remember, if you'd like to be part of Illumin, coming whenever it fits your schedule, you can learn more at IlluminHour.com. Thank you for listening.